Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Max Foster in London. Now, in Ukraine, Russian forces have launched a major strike on the southern port city of Odessa, firing hypersonic missiles at a shopping mall and two hotels. At least one person was killed. In Mariupol, the Azovstal steel plant came under heavy bombardment overnight. Ukrainian soldiers are trapped there and many are said to be badly hurt. Combat medic uh, Katerina Polishchuk, who led the soldiers in a battle hymn which went viral last week, sent a defiant message on Facebook saying they will fight to the last. Now, with Ukraine's ports at a standstill and the Russian blockade in force, President Zelensky urged the international community to step in to prevent a global food crisis. His remarks followed a visit to Odessa by Charles Michel, uh, the president of the European Council. Before the invasion, Ukraine was the world's fourth largest exporter of maize. This is not just a strike at Ukraine. Without our agrarian export, Dozens of countries in various regions of the world have found themselves on the brink of food deficit. With time, the situation can truly become disastrous. Politicians have already begun looking into ramifications of the price crisis and food shortage in the countries of Africa and Asia. Also in Ukraine is the German foreign minister, Anna-Lena Baerbock, visited uh, Bucha, uh, the suburb of North Kiev, which is the focus of a war crimes investigation. She's the first member of the German cabinet to travel to Ukraine since the Russian invasion. In southern Ukraine, the Kherson region is vital to Russia's plan to establish control from the Donbass in the east to Crimea. An official uh, in Moscow has said Russians plan uh, to stay there forever, but the battle for control is making life a nightmare for villagers trapped by endless shelling. Sinez Nick Peyton Walsh reports. Both nothing and everything has changed here. The front lines have barely moved on the road to the southern city of Kherson, the first Russia captured in the six weeks since we were last here. But instead, since then, almost everything in between has been torn up by shelling that literally does not stop. Trapping people who physically cannot flee in the churn of a brutal stalemate. Here, in the village of Shevchenko, our two neighbours, both called Luba. We move to the yard as the shells get closer. Leonid still manages to get down to his wife's basement shelter. She's installed a plank on the way here to help him rest. They used to get dressed up to go to bed. It was so cold down here. But mention leaving 
and she chuckled. У мене план хотів завтра вийти. Я кожен день виходжу, мене кози ждуть. Я б іще, може, і полежала, стріляють, но кози просяться їм їсточки дати. Діти війни вони у мене, да, я їх так і називаю, да. Night spent here have focused her hatred. Росіяни військові, я вважаю, що вони просто виконують собі приказ. А Путіна я б так четвертувала і розкидала по всьому світу по кусочку Across the road is Valentina alone. Shells always seem to just miss her. Війну родилася, напевно, війну подохну. Казала дітям, не кажіть, не кажіть. Як помру, то казала на городі, щоб мене поховали, щоб я бачила, що будете робити. Не, Господи, скільки це можна? Overwhelmed, yet hauntingly eloquent. Дивіться на ці муки дуже, щоб мир був. Хто на хату розтрощила, пов такої глини, осталася сама в чотирьох стінах. Ніде нічого не той. Я плачу діду, якби ти встав, я ти подивився. Що робиться на білому світі? Щоб так ночі лягти і не встати, то було б саме лучше. Нічого не чути, не бачити. А жалко всіх людей, солдатів жалко. It's not so much that life goes on here, but that it has nowhere else to go. These men selling cow's milk, although that's not what Leonid has been drinking. Всім привіт. Hello to everyone, he says. 40 times a day and night they shall. Barely a window is intact, shrapnel flying through the glass daily. Yesterday was Svetlana's turn, but she can't leave, and she's waiting for her son to return from the war in Mariupol. Our children are all at war, she says. My son is a prisoner. If he comes back, and if I have gone, it's like I've abandoned him. We wait, hope, worry. He is alive, and we will live. On the road out of here, the shrapnel rises fiercely above the warm fields. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Shevchenko, Ukraine. Our other top story is linked to uh, the stunning nerve-rattling volatility in the global stock market. So US stocks fell to their lowest levels in over a year Monday on continuing concerns about the war in Ukraine, a slowing Chinese economy, as well as efforts by central banks to contain soaring inflation. The selling pressure taking a bit of a breather today, though. Uh, Wall Street futures are pointing to a higher open tech stocks in the lead. Uh, European shares are also on the rise. Uh, Rahel Sol- Solomon joins me. A uh, bit of a better picture uh, today. Um, try and make sense of it for us. Hi, Max. Yeah, it feels like a a sight for sore eyes. Finally, some green on the screen, but not a ton of conviction that this is the beginning of a turnaround or that this will be a turnaround Tuesday, because to your point, we have seen these sort of momentary breathers in the midst of a larger sell-off. I want to point you to yesterday and how the average is closed. The Dow closed down about 1.9 percent, the S&P 3.2 percent, and the Nasdaq closed lower about 4.9%. And if you go back to last week, they all closed lower. In fact, it was the fifth consecutive week of negative closings for all of the major averages. For the S&P, that was its longest negative run in a decade. So why, Max? Part of, you know, the macro factors that you've already mentioned, the war in Ukraine, uh, inflation, supply chain challenges. But also this earnings season, we are hearing more from companies citing weak demand and their outlook and their forecast. And that is clearly creating some certainty. In fact, it is the most mentions of weak demand since Q2 of 2020. So this is not great news for investors when companies start signaling down the pike that they're starting to see weaker demand. And you're seeing that sort of jitteriness and that anxiety reflected in the markets, Max.
Yeah, and uh, if we look at some of the individual stocks, uh, those stocks that were doing incredibly well during the pandemic, some of them doing just as badly post-pandemic. It's a very unforgiving market, isn't it, for some of them? Exactly. It's, it's almost as if the pandemic darlings, as they were called, that soared during the pandemic have now soured. Let's point to Peloton, perhaps uh, the perfect example of a pandemic darling. At one point, Max, it was up about $170 a share. It is now closer to about $12 a share. That is a remarkable fall from Greece for, for Peloton. In fact, they just reported about an hour ago, uh, last quarter sales tumbled 15% from a year ago. They lost $757 million last quarter. Uh, the company saying that they want to prioritize cash flow. And it's a similar sentiment, in fact, because Uber, uh, Uber CEO put out a note over the weekend, an internal memo to its employees, uh, essentially saying that there had been a seismic shift in the markets and that they were prioritizing free cash flow. Uh, Max, to your point, it is clearly an unforgiving market. And these companies, these high growth tech companies that had really soared during the pandemic and had prioritized growth growth over profits, it appears that's no longer going to work for investors. And some companies like Peloton and Uber seem to be acknowledging that now. Okay, Rahel Solomon, thank you very much indeed. Stock market's not not the only concern. U.S. gas prices hitting all-time highs amid rising inflation. The national average uh, price of regular gasoline is now $4.37 a gallon, according to to AAA. That takes out the previous record set two months ago. Later today, President Biden will deliver remarks to outline his plans to fight inflation. Jeremy Diamond is live at the White House on that one for us. And uh, it's such a difficult job to get this right because someone's always going to suffer, isn't it, whatever he does. Uh, Yeah, that's right. And listen, President Biden is delivering this speech amid incredible political headwinds. A majority of Americans, according to CNN polling, don't believe the economy is in good shape or heading in the right direction. They believe that President Biden's policies have hurt the economy and they don't believe that he's doing enough to combat inflation. And so that is why you're going to see President Biden step up to the podium today to try and combat some of that perception that he's not doing enough on inflation, to talk about what he's been able to do so far, including on energy prices, for example, as gas prices in the United States hit record highs. The president is going to talk about his efforts to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He's going to talk about this waiver on the sale of uh, ethanol uh, in, uh, ethanol gasoline. Uh, and he's also going to uh, try and talk about some of his other efforts to lower costs for Americans overall. He's going to lay out some of his plans for the future, including some of the proposals that we saw in his Build Back Better uh, Act, uh, which never uh, ultimately became law because not only of Republican opposition, but also because of opposition from some Democrats, uh, a couple of key Democrats, including Senator uh, Joe Manchin. But the president is also going to be trying to use this speech to contrast his agenda, his proposals with that of Republicans, most notably the Uh, tax proposal put forward by Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who's the chair uh, of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. Uh, This is a proposal he put forward back in February that the White House says is going to raise uh, taxes on millions of Americans and President Biden going to try and use that proposal to paint Republicans with a broad brush and to contrast those policies with his own. But make no mistake, a lot of headwinds for President Biden heading into these midterm elections and also a struggle to get these inflationary pressures under control. That's largely because a lot of this comes down to what the Federal Reserve is doing. And so you can bet that President Biden is going to hope that that latest uh, rate hike from the Federal Reserve will really have an impact on inflation going forward. Max? Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thank you.
uh, as China struggles to overcome its COVID crisis, Shanghai further tightening lockdown measures despite the number of infections now falling. Now even people living near individuals who test positive are being forced to go to quarantine centres. Selena Wang joins us live from Kunming, China. She's on day 18 of a 21-day mandatory quarantine. At least we're keeping you company. I guess there is that. But um, it's extraordinary to think that they can tighten even further on people's lives in Shanghai. They're really doubling down on this zero-COVID policy. I mean, people in Shanghai, Max, they've been trapped in their homes for more than a month and the restrictions are only getting more draconian. Just last week, Xi Jinping said he was going to double down on zero COVID and punish anyone who questions the policy. And so we're seeing these local officials under pressure to pursue zero COVID at all costs. In Shanghai, people are outraged over this new policy that is sending entire apartment buildings to quarantine facilities, all because just one person in the building tested positive for COVID. This is happening to apartment blocks where they have these communal bathrooms and kitchens. But even in apartments where the person who tested positive is confined to a single room, you are still seeing their entire floor, the entire floor above them and the floor below them. All three floors are being sent to government facilities. This is causing fights between policemen and the residents. In this one viral video, you can see the resident arguing with the police who are saying they're going to need to remove them by force because someone on their floor tested positive for COVID. And you can see the worker in the hazmat suit, the policeman saying, quote, it's not that you can do whatever you want unless you are in America. This is China. Don't ask us why. This is based on the country's epidemic prevention policy. That's it. That was the response they gave to these residents who are outraged because they're saying we've tested negative. Why are we being forced out of our homes? Now we have reached out to the Shanghai government for further clarification on this. We've yet to receive a response. We do not know if those residents were ultimately sent to quarantine facilities or not. But it is heavy handed policies like this that are making residents feel like they've lost any piece of freedom that they had left during these lockdowns. In many of these videos, you can also see that residents have actually been forced to hand over their keys to quarantine workers while they are being stuck in these facilities so that workers in hazmat suits can spray disinfectant all over their homes, spraying it indiscriminately over their couches, furniture, artwork, spraying it all over their rooms. And in Shanghai right now, people are not actually so much fearful of getting the virus itself, but they're scared of testing positive and being sent away, forced out of their homes to these quarantine facilities, which many of them are in extremely unsanitary and rundown condition with many beds crammed together, lights on 24 seven with dirty toilets, sometimes even a lack of toilet paper. Some of these facilities were put together so quickly that they don't even have beds, just wooden slats for people to sleep on. Now these lockdown policies, they are causing extreme mental exhaustion for people. It's taking a huge economic toll. But right now in China, where zero COVID is tied directly to the leadership of China's Supreme Leader, critics are saying that zero COVID is now more about politics than science and Max, it is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, it's just gonna, there's certainly no sign of it going away whatsoever. Selena Wang, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, straight ahead, more on the war in Ukraine. We'll speak to Russia's former foreign minister live on the show. And we'll have more of the business news just ahead, including why fears over the US economy are proving kryptonite, even for crypto.
A reminder of our top story, the onslaught on the Ukrainian city of Odessa by Russian forces. Missile strikes have hit residential areas, destroying a shopping mall and a luxury hotel resort as well. Hypersonic missiles were amongst those deployed in the city. While in Kharkiv, new drone video shows a Russian tank being targeted close to where a civilian convoy uh, was fired upon earlier on. Uh, let's speak to Scott McLean. He's uh, live in Lviv for us, keeping across all of these things. And obviously, Odessa, a key target because it's so important strategically. Yeah, Max, but what is unclear at this stage is these precise locations that were hit. What is the strategic value of those? Because, you know, Odessa has been a huge target in recent weeks. Oftentimes, the, the target is infrastructure, bridges, that kind of thing. Um, but this was not that. And so one of the one of the missiles struck a, a series of warehouses that caught fire. Potentially there was some strategic value there, but others are real head scratchers. Seven missiles, according to the Ukrainians, were fired on at a mall. This is a normal Western style mall. It had lots of international internationally recognized stores in it. It was actually set for an expansion to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. It was one of the largest shopping centers in southern Ukraine, and you have to wonder why it was hit. Now, remarkably, only one person was killed there. A handful of people were injured, but surely there could have been more if the mall was actually open. The reason that it was closed, Max, is because, well, the government had imposed a curfew that came into effect Sunday night and only lifted this morning, anticipating there would be some kind of attacks on May 9th, on this May 9th holiday day. You mentioned that luxury hotel as well. This is in the southern part of Odessa. It's right on the beach there. It's owned by a pro-Russian businessman, was often frequented by uh, Russian elites in the media and politics. Again, not really clear why this was a target or if it was the intended target. There was another hotel in a seaside village south of Odessa. This um, village is very close to a bridge that's been hit a few times by the Russians since the war began. It is the only road or rail link between that far southwest corner of Ukraine and the rest of the country. So again, a lot of questions why this hotel in particular would have been hit. And one other thing to mention, Max, is you mentioned the actual missiles that's been used. A lot of has been made of these. It's a Kinsel missile. What is significant about this? Well, uh, it has a longer range. Uh, it has a bigger payload, it's bigger, and also it can be fired from fighter jets as well. Other missiles can be fired from fighter jets as well, but it makes it more difficult for the air defense systems to pick up. And so considering it can be fired from all different directions, has a longer range, is bigger, it's maybe a little bit more dangerous than some other missiles uh, that we've seen used in this war. And this is only the second time that the Russians have used that kind of missile since the conflict began, Max. Uh, they are making progress. It's very slow progress, though, according to... Know, Western intelligence. And we're hearing more stories about how Russian officers are sometimes defying orders. Is this all uh, linked to the, you know, issues with morale within the forces? Yeah. So, uh, Max, this is according to U.S. defense officials. So, and, and they're citing anecdotal evidence. So I think we need to treat this with a little bit of caution or treat it, take it with a grain of salt. But what this defense official is saying is that anecdotal reports of Russian troops and even mid-level officers either not obeying orders or not obeying orders with the same kind of enthusiasm that you would normally see in these type of situations. These are orders to move forward 
in their march forward to retake the Donbass area. Um, now, the Americans have said for a while that the Russians continue to struggle with morale issues. And in this case, they also say that they're struggling with some resupply issues. These were the same kind of issues that really plagued Russian troops as they tried to take Kiev. And that's part of the reason, it seems, why they ended up retreating, Max. Okay, um, thank you um, so much, Jordis from Lviv. Uh, that's the view then from Ukraine. Let's consider Russia's standpoint, standpoint here. Uh, joining us is Andrei Kozirev, a former Russian foreign minister, author of the book The Firebird, The Elusive Fate of Russian Democracy. Andrei is in Washington, D.C. Uh, for us. Thank you for joining us. Um, I know you're a part of the um, Russian delegation that... Uh, uh, effectively negotiated after, uh, you know, information of uh, Ukraine most recently about how, what they would do about their nuclear weapons. And, you know, Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons. And the irony being that they now feel threatened by those weapons on the Russian side. Yes, it's not only irony, but it's betrayal. Uh, because uh, uh, we negotiated, uh, I on the Russian side, as a Russian foreign minister with Secretary of State uh, of the United States. At that time, it was Warren Christopher. We sat in uh, Budapest, and that's why the product uh, of our writing, <laughs> joint writing, actually, uh, is known as a Budapest Memorandum, which provided assurances for Ukraine in that borders, which were at that time universally recognized and those included Crimea and the whole of Donbass. And uh, <clears throat> those assurances were violated by Russian side blatantly and brazenly. Uh, first time in 14 when they annexed uh, the Crimea and then uh, the eastern, part of Eastern Ukraine. And now it is violated uh, altogether, you know, with this uh, invasion. And uh, it's now for the United States and Great Britain, which were also initial participants, but there were many others after that supporting this memorandum to live up uh, to their assurances. Uh, so, yes, I was at the beginning, at, and I can tell you that it's very painful to see that my country, that Russia, is the violator of uh, the most important international agreements and uh, norms. And that's why I don't hesitate to call for strong support, military support to Ukraine and sanctions as severe as possible against uh, the Putin's regime. Um, other Russians haven't got the same access to the same kind of information. Um, so they feel that the aggressive side is coming from the West and um, that the agreements were undermined by Western nations in Ukraine. Um, how would you argue that to a Russian that's just seeing Russian state media right now? Well, I try to be on, on Russian, uh, not state media, because it's impossible. They don't invite me or <laughs> they don't... Uh, 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 kind of, they probably punish those who try to invite me to state media. But uh, I speak on uh, some other um, free media, which is unfortunately now in immigra uh, immigration in uh, around there, you know, like Czech Republic, Pol 
Poland and others and other countries, but they tried to penetrate the new Iron Curtain. And uh, what uh, we are telling uh, or trying to tell the Russian people the same, what I told you, that it's absolutely inhuman war. It, uh, it's a war of choice. It's the war just for aggrandizement of one person. But it is also important, uh, in my mind, to tell the Western audiences that they will pay double price. They already start to pay double price for being timid with their response. It was very timid in 14, but it's still uh, puzzling. You know, not only Macron, but even, uh, I, I hate to say, President Biden starts to speak of the uh, off-ramp or face-saving for Putin. I mean, that's ridiculous. First of all, he did not still lose uh, in this conflict, in this war. Uh, it still sh- should be done with more weapons. And, you know, it's like you come to a uh, oriental bazaar with an ele- elaborate business plan, uh, which starts with what you want to do. And then you start to tell uh, the guy there that <clears throat> you are worried what he will tell his family uh, if he loses in this bargain. And he is just, he does not understand what you are talking about. He will come back home if beaten and probably if he won and beat his family. He will beat his wife or his wife's. And that's okay. what Putin will do. If he loses in Ukraine, he will come back and double down on repression and propaganda. I just want to ask you a, a wider global question linked to this, because you were part of the team that you know, negotiated with Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons. Um, and, and now they don't have that deterrent. We saw a similar thing happen in Libya, people are arguing. And then we have a situation where North Korea is seeing what happened to Ukraine and Libya and uh, seeing a very good reason never to give up its nuclear weapons and, in fact, to get more aggressive about developing nuclear weapons. Is that your concern off the back of what happened to Ukraine? That's the real concern, not what is the off-ramp for Putin, but the problem is what is off-ramp for the West, because if people start to understand that those assurances are not uh, honored, uh, then the whole system of international relations will be broken, as you said. People all over the world, not only in those rogue countries, but in good countries like Ukraine, uh, they will start thinking that there is no international order they can rely on. There are no assurances they can rely on. There is only nuclear weapons uh, they could, uh, which could provide them a degree of security or at least deterrence, because that's what deterrence was for 70 years. That's why the Soviet Union never attacked uh, Uni- the United States or NATO, for that matter, because they knew that they will get it back and that suicidal act. So, uh, yes, the whole thing, the whole world will, be, will go nuclear. Okay. Um, Andrei Kozirev, thank you very much indeed for your insight, former Russian foreign minister. 
Uh, welcome back. In New York, the opening bell has sounded on Wall Street and uh, U.S. stocks are higher in early trading. A bit of a respite from the intense selling pressure we've seen over the past few sessions, thanks in part to a pullback in bond yields. Uh, Nasdaq falling more than 4% on Monday. It's still uh, down more than 20% on the year to date, would you believe? The big question on investors' minds is when will the selling pressure ease? John Petridis joins us. He's the portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. So, John, are we closer to the end of this selling, the multi-million dollar question? Yeah, I mean, I think we are clearly closer. I mean, you have... uh you know, nearly, a, a, particularly in the NASDAQ, a 25% sell-off year-to-date, the S&P down 16%. Uh, and, and it's not just stocks either. It's, you know, the bond market, the high-quality U.S. bond market, the Barclays aggregate is off 10%. The high-yield bond market's off, uh, you know, 11%. So, uh, you know, this is a broad-based sell-off. And for the most part, this is a just a, a recalibration of valuations, interest rates, you know, when interest rates are down low, like we've had valuations, particularly in stocks and asset classes, go up. And now you're having that, you know, sort of reckoning. And we've had a massive move on the interest rate uh, side of things going higher, despite the Fed still what seems to be in early stages of quantitative tightening. And then you have um, uh, valuations are, are coming down. And for the first time in a long time, you know, stocks are attractive from a valuation standpoint. You know, in the past, the story was, well, if you own cash, you're not earning anything in your cash. And before the year started, the, the risk to bonds was that the Fed was going to taper, uh, reduce its balance sheet, raise interest rates, and that the wind would be at the face of the bond market. And the U.S. 10-year bond was only yielding 1.5%. So people bought stocks because there was nowhere else to go. Now you can buy stocks because the valuations are more supportive of it. Uh, but valuations, you know, based on looking at interest rates is one thing, obviously quite unpredictable, but you can at least try to figure it out. We've got these two massive headwinds, though, haven't we, which no one can really predict. Russia and the impact on commodity prices, but also all the disruption in China, where so much of the kit that we consume is made. Um, how are consumers or investors meant to make sense of all these three things going on at once? Well, I think that comes down to your time horizon. If you're trade, if you're a trader, I, I think those two elements are are almost are very difficult to handicap. You know, I, to to make sense of how long and where the Russian-Ukraine conflict will turn is, you know, pretty much anyone's guess. And to uh, then it comes down to in terms of China and its zero COVID policy is at what point in time do they a uh, ease up on their zero COVID stance and or inject massive money printing and quantitative easing to stimulate their economy while they're going through this COVID uh, uh, retrenchment. So I, I think if you're a trader, it's very hard to predict those types of events. But if you're a long-term investor, war probably, war I hope won't last forever. And at some point in time, the, the impact of COVID will be felt, you know, much like in the United States where we're just kind of dealing with it and you go over the regulatory and the, and the shutdown period and you kind of get, you know, to a degree herd immunity. So, um, you know, at some point we do get through it. It all depends from an investment standpoint what your time horizon is, if you're willing to look out a couple of years or if you're a trader in the short term. And for a lot of people, uh, life is pretty good, isn't it? When you look at um, the employment rate. So that's pretty strong. But do you worry that you know, as people or firms compete over the best workers that, you know, wages will continue to rise and then you end up with that wage price spiral, which can be so damaging. 
But we can't complain or be worried about recession on one hand and then a strong job market on the other. You know, it's not you know, you can't look at one without the other. So it's not what you necessarily what you make. It's how much you keep. And that's the issue for people now is that inflation is going up. But if you have wage growth that can help offset those uh, inflationary pressures in the short term, that's a good thing. And, and, and I think it's better for people to be employed than unemployed. And as you know, listen, last week when we had the jobs data, you know, 460,000 people who once didn't have a job are now employed. And, and by and large, that's that's overall very good for the economy. Um, are you not concerned that when figures do eventually come through that, you know, I, I know you're quite positive about the state of the economy, but you know, there's a strong argument for saying it's already in recession, um, isn't it? And uh, we should be sort of managing policy around that basis right now. Well, I, it's hard to see how the U.S. is in recession with the labor market so strong, the housing market so tight. I mean, just because the stock market is down a lot doesn't mean that we are in recession today. In fact, you know, for the U.S. to go into recession, it's like turning a cruise ship in a lake. It's really, really hard to do because the U.S. is now much more of a service-oriented economy, not a manufacturing economy. I mean, if you look in the past 20 years or so, what, what are the events that have led us to recession? Well, it was the dot-com bubble exacerbated by 9-11 in 2000, 2001. It was the subprime crisis and greatest housing bubble we've seen since the Great Depression in 2008. And it was, uh, you know, a hundred-year pandemic uh, with COVID that led us into recession uh, two years ago. So, you know, those are very much exogenous events and clearly not traditional uh, monetary factors that forces uh, uh, the, the, an economy into recession. And, and, you know, if you take a long-term time horizon and look what has happened after every one of those events, clearly the, the financial assets are worth more today than they were at the time of those uh, recessions. John Pedrides, as ever, thank you very much for your time and your analysis. Thanks for having uh, me on. Now, coming up, uh, it's worse in Sri Lanka, much, much worse. Economic collapse, sparking chaos and deadly violence. The outgoing Prime Minister rescued in a pre-dawn operation. Details in a full report next. Stories making headlines around the world today. Uh, Britain's uh, Prince Charles has delivered what's traditionally the Queen's speech at the ceremonial opening of Parliament. His mother, Queen Elizabeth, was unable to attend because of what Buckingham Palace called mobility problems. In the speech, written not by the Queen but the government, uh, the Prime Minister sets out priorities for the coming year. The Queen has missed the annual event only twice before when she was pregnant. Uh, Sri Lanka's outgoing prime minister is said to be at a secret location with his family after the military rescued him when his home came under attack by protesters overnight. Mahindra Rajapatska announced his resignation on Monday after weeks of violent unrest over the country's worst economic crisis ever. Sinan's Anna Koran has more from Hong Kong. The Sri Lankan military were forced to rescue outgoing Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa in a pre-dawn operation after anti-government protesters hurled petrol bombs at his private residence and tried to breach his home. It follows a night of violent clashes between pro- and anti-government protesters that left several dead and hundreds injured across the country. Earlier, the Prime Minister, during an address to supporters at his official residence, incited his followers to attack anti-government protesters who've spent months peacefully demonstrating against the Rajapaksa government as the country suffers from its worst economic crisis. 
His supporters were filmed live on television, hitting protesters with metal bars and setting tents at their makeshift settlement alight. The protesters responded by torching dozens of homes of government ministers across Sri Lanka, including the ancestral home of the Rajapaksa family. While the Prime Minister has stepped down, saying he was paving the way for a unity government, his younger brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, remains the president of the country, the most powerful position in Sri Lanka. The Rajapaksa brothers have ruled Sri Lanka for much of the past 20 years, and protesters are demanding the president step down as well. The Rajapaksa family have been accused of corruption, nepotism and economic mismanagement, which has led to double-digit inflation, an acute shortage of fuel and medicine, along with rolling blackouts. A state of emergency has been declared and a curfew remains in place until Wednesday morning in a desperate attempt to quell the violence. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. In the Philippines, in the Philippines, a preliminary election results show that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is poised to win the presidency. The son and namesake of the former Philippine dictator has a commanding lead over his closest rival with more than 95 percent of the vote counted. His running mate, uh, Sara Duterte Carpio, uh, the daughter of the sitting president, is also leading in the vice presidential race. Uh, we get more details now from CNN's Ivan Watson. We're still days away from final official uh, results of Monday's national elections in the Philippines. But the, the preliminary numbers suggest a landslide victory for Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known popularly in the Philippines as Bong Bong, the son of the late ousted dictator of the Philippines. Uh, Bong Bong ran a campaign calling for unity, uh, also with a bit of a nostalgia message. Uh, critics argue whitewashing the atrocious human rights record of his father when he spent nearly a decade uh, ruling through martial law, uh, also downplaying allegations of, of gross corruption. Uh, and millions, uh, tens of millions of Filipino voters uh, appeared to respond uh, to his campaign message. Here's part of what he had to say to voters after polls closed. I wanted to issue a short statement, uh, and it essentially is a statement of gratitude to all of those who have been with us in this long and sometimes very difficult journey uh, for the last six months. Uh, I, need, I want to thank you for all that you have done for us. There are thousands of you out there. Part of what appeared to work for Bong Bong Marcos was a strategic alliance with uh, another powerful political dynasty, uh, that of Rodrigo Duterte, the outgoing, rather controversial Philippines president. His daughter, Sarah, was a running mate uh, for the post of vice president alongside Marcos, uh, and uh, that combination seems to have won uh, potentially a bigger electoral mandate than any other uh, president, vice president ticket has, has seen really potentially in generations. There have been uh, reports of more than a thousand vote counting machines that appear to have malfunctioned and that has triggered some displays of discontent, some protests uh, in the Philippines capital on Tuesday. Take a listen. 
We saw the need to mobilize ourselves because we've heard reports of cheating, malfunctioning vote counting machines, forms of harassment from the electoral board and police, other forms of harassment of poll watchers and instances of vote buying. So all of these are very alarming. The biggest rival to Bong Bong Marcos is the uh, presidential candidate, uh, former Vice President Lenny uh, Robredo. She herself has come out uh, not conceding, uh, but admitting disappointment and also calling on her supporters not to give in to disunity. So we'll be watching closely to see how investigations into uh, malfunctioning machines go forward and also into how the various politicians will position themselves uh, as the official vote count progresses. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. South Korea has a new leader. Yoon Suk-yeol was inaugurated president just a few hours ago. He is a political novice embarking on his first elected office, but he has plenty of decisions to make from day one. Uh, CNN's Paula Hancocks has the details. Yoon Suk-yeol is sworn in as president of South Korea. His very first job in politics, a political novice and an international unknown. Untried and untested politically, Yoon made his name as the prosecutor who led the corruption case against former President Park Geun-hye in 2016. It led to her impeachment, praised and promoted by President Moon Jae-in, who replaced her. Yoon's grasp of his new job will have to be swift. Eleven days after taking power, he'll be hosting a summit with US President Joe Biden. During his campaign, Yoon stressed the need for a closer US-South Korean alliance. Yoon has also pledged to be more engaged on the international stage. We must take an even greater role in expanding freedom and human rights, not just for ourselves, but also for others. The international community expects us to do so. North Korea policy is expected to change quickly, from Moon Jae-in's pro-engagement push to Yoon's hardline stance. During the campaign, Yoon floated the idea of a preemptive strike if Pyongyang looked close to a threatening launch against Seoul. In his inauguration speech, however, he also said while the nuclear program is a threat, the door to dialogue does remain open. He said he could work on what he calls an audacious plan to strengthen North Korea's economy in exchange for a complete denuclearization. The policy of the Conservatives will be hardline, pure and simple. And there are chances that such hardline will lead to military clashes which might escalate. Pressing domestic issues also await President Yoon. COVID-induced economic pain, polarisation, population decline, to name just a few of them. The country who voted him in now waits to see what kind of a leader he'll be. Paula Hancocks, CNN Seoul. Next, a uh, big tumble for blockchain. Why not even Bitcoin is immune to fears about the US economy? A rollercoaster ride for Bitcoin. The digital currency is regaining some ground after plunging over the weekend. At one point, Bitcoin's value was more than 50% uh, below its all-time high. Uh, this is how it's doing right now. Uh, Bitcoin suffering from the same issues, really, that are dragging down prices for stocks and bonds, including fears about inflation and higher interest rates. Uh, Paul LaMonica uh, joins us now. Um, I mean, it is up today, but it fell so sharply, didn't it? And it's losing the reputation of being a safe haven, frankly. Yeah, exactly, Max. There had been a lot of investors who had been holding on to this notion that Bitcoin was like digital gold, that it's a type of asset you would want to own 
in times of turmoil. And that's clearly not the case with Bitcoin plunging this year due to worries ranging from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to oil prices and commodities. You've had the dollar, the U.S. dollar spiking, which has hurt Bitcoin as a store of value. And then just the broader market turmoil. I think investors are starting to realize that Bitcoin is much more like a tech stock than a stodgy bond currency or commodity. It had been an inflation hedge, hadn't it? But um, I guess, you know, investors are just looking at all of these investments in a similar way right now because those headwinds are so strong. Yeah, the headwinds are very strong, Max. And I think that people realize that at a time where gold has been more stable, the dollar is strengthening, they're not necessarily as much of an inflation hedge. And we'll find out later this afternoon when Coinbase, the big uh, digital uh, cryptocurrency brokerage company that recently went public. They report earnings after the close and they are likely to show many challenges. And that's why uh, Coinbase's stock is down nearly 70 percent uh, you know, from its highs. It has been a very rough patch for Coinbase and other companies with crypto exposure like Robinhood. Yeah. So what effect that would then have the knock on effect, wouldn't it, on the wider market as well? If those companies with these big exposures are hit really hard, which seems likely, as you say. Yeah, I think that uh, the problem with cryptocurrency investors is that many people who are invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other large cryptos, they also have exposure to companies like Coinbase, Robinhood, some of the Bitcoin miners like uh, Riot Blockchain and Hive Blockchain, uh, Marathon Digital. These are companies that all will do well at a time when Bitcoin prices and other cryptos are rising. But obviously, that is not the case right now. So many of these stocks are getting hit just as hard, if not even more so than Bitcoin and some of the underlying crypto assets that uh, you know these companies have exposure to. Unpredictable everything right now. Paul Le, Le, Le Monica, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, we're going to take you to Paris briefly. Before we go, one of the world's most famous landmarks lighting up in support of Ukraine, the Eiffel Tower. Um, blue and yellow. Look at that glorious scene. Um, we'll be back same time tomorrow. Uh, connect the world with Eleni up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.